it's my great honor to invite Mr. Ali Ahmadi. And Ali is a scholar of sanctions and geoeconomics. And he's currently an executive fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy, an analyst at the Gulf State Analytics in Washington. Mr. Ahmadi, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. The pleasure is all mine, sir. Now, let's get started. Initially, when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote and is entitled Russia-Ukraine War Implications for Asia Geoeconomics. And one thing the subtitles even more interesting, this is what it says, as the war and resulting sanctions regional trade maps in Asia, Iran stands to be the primary beneficiary. Now, I want to get started with this title. Why Iran? So in other words, this is the war about two countries, Ukraine and Russia. And somehow the other countries got pulled into this war unexpectedly. But very seldom, or to be honest, that we have not heard anything regarding the country of Iran. Why would you say that Iran seemed to be the primary beneficiary within this war? Help us to understand. Well, there's still a lot of uncertainty about how all of this is going to play out. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of different factors uh, that affect it. Uh, in, the, in the analysis piece, I'm trying to read the tea leaves as to how this affects the various trade routes across Asia and East-West trade. And basically, you know, one thing that we saw at the very early stages of the conflict was that this is definitely going to very strongly affect uh, the new Eurasia land bridge. Mm. So uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative very much uh, talks about the mystique of the old Silk Road. But when you talk about land routes in Asia, uh, the most important uh, route towards reaching uh, is it Western Europe and the most coveted markets for China is actually through Central Asia and through Russia, uh, through uh, Kazakhstan and through Russia and then through Eastern Europe. And that's how a lot of Chinese goods transit to Europe and to Western Europe. Now, this route is going to become increasingly problematic because of the sanctions that are imposed, because of all the different logistics companies that pulled out even before the sanctions were imposed for fear of reputational risk or, or for fear of the more complicated uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical risk uh, that might be involved for them. So you have to look at what, well, what are China's alternatives with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative. And the most important alternative is that lower tier of the belts, and that is the one that goes uh, through northern Iran and through Turkey uh, to reach Europe. So that's that sort of one dimension with which that was immediately clear that, that Iran could become more important here. Uh, then you have there, over the course of the last couple of months, you have a number of other developments. You have a flurry of activity surrounding a lot of countries in Central Asia and South Asia that are that also use Russia to transit goods, but are increasingly looking towards Iran and Iranian territory. And then you have the final piece of it, which is Russia's own sort of look eastward strategy as it looks towards trade with Eastern countries to mitigate the effect of sanctions. Um, you know, there are a lot of countries that are going to benefit from one way or another or be harmed in one way or another. But Iran is really one country where you see all of those different trends kind of intersect. Mm. You know, Mr. Mahdi, I, I, I want to go back to the article. That's something you wrote. Again, going back to the definition, and you said, I quote, 
The definition is closer to scholars who sees geoeconomics as the interplay between economics and geopolitics. And we know that this year, it's rather crucial for China. Not only that this Belt and Road Initiative Again, more countries recently joined under this Belt and Road project. But meanwhile, a lot more experts or even some of the countries are questioning under Belt and Road Initiative, is it possible that we separate politics from geoeconomics aspect? So in other words, if I just want to be this econ economic partner with China, do I have to follow this political games or not? Because again, when we look at the war, Russia and Ukraine are still fighting against each other, but China significantly play as, as a silent player, not only for this political reason, but also for this economic factors. So people are wondering, when I, when I am dealing with China, or when I'm trying to be the partner with China, do I have to play with this political game aside from economic influence? Well, I mean, I, I think that's that's a complicated question, but it, it, they're separating economics and development models from politics has always been a fairly complicated thing to do. And that's, you know, is, is you, that, that part uh, you read up in the article was me trying to point out that the term geoeconomics is just very poorly defined as scholars themselves have, uh, have, have, have talked about. Um, but the, the separating of the two is, is incredibly difficult. And the Belt and Road Initiative in particular is for China, you know, has a lot of different political implications for the countries of the region, whether you're talking about Central Asia or Pakistan or Iran. Uh, you know, these are countries that have not benefited very much from globalization. And in the Belt and Road Initiative, they see a kind of alternative globalization to to the United States, the linchpin of the certain global uh, economic order. Iran is a, is a very politicized space. Pakistan, despite having better relations with the United States, is a very politicized space. And China's involvement suddenly turns them into economically, it, it, it turns into economic opportunity, a kind of alternative globalization that, that reduces their dependence on Europe, on the United States. And that, that's going to have a lot of different uh, political consequences. Hmm. You know, again, let's keep going with the article. That's something you wrote. And again, we know that as soon as the war broke out in Ukraine and more countries, particularly from the West, place sanctions after sanctions upon Russia. So in other words, the whole purpose was trying to dry out the resources for the Russian government and so that the government or even Vladimir Putin can stop such ruthless behavior towards the people in Ukraine. But meanwhile, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Mahdi, sanctions only work to some extent if the leader understand the dire situation for the people. But in this case, Putin has not realized, I, I don't want to say anything, just a bit. Maybe he's still wondering how far he's willing to take regardless uh, war strategy. But meanwhile, China, let's bring China back to the conversation. China continue on the sidelines support or send supplies to some of the countries in order to I guess, not to get too involved into the war. So that really, how can I say, weakens the sanctions that placed by other countries. And also, on the other hand, the relationship between US and Iran today is standing at the crossroads. I guess what I'm trying to say, Mr. Ahmadi, is 
For Russia and for, for Iran, those countries are not actually on a good term with the US, but meanwhile, China continued to play as a strategic player. How does that influence the relationship between China and the US at this moment? And also the question is, why even bother to place more sanctions upon Russia if China continued to, to be the player in the middle of the war? Well, the the conversation about sanctions effectiveness that there's you know the never ending conversation about <laughs> sanctions effectiveness about you know when it's effective under what circumstances uh, it's effective it depends on what your goals are I mean that the, is really hard a lot of times what's happened over the course of the last 50, 70 years is that countries impose a lot of sanctions in response to a behavior they don't like mm. a policy they don't like from a target state and then sort of figure out what the actual uh, strategy and target is at a later point and right now you have voices from all across Europe and the United States saying different things Joe Biden famously said the thing about how Putin can't stay that was seemed to be kind of retracted by the White House then a summer country some people are looking to contain Russia in the long term in the context of great power competition some countries are just trying to you know a lot of especially countries like Germany France Italy are trying to uh, deal with just this situation on their eastern flank and try to come to some sort of settlement with China to lift with uh, Russia rather to lift the sanctions in exchange for Russia pulling out. So we, we don't really know what the Western sanctions coalition, they don't, they don't have a clear strategy mm. on, on what to ask for, how to go, what are the demands here? Are there demands? Is this a long-term effort to weaken Russia? So we, we don't really know the answers to that. So the question of whether sanctions will work is, is hard to answer when you don't know what the, what the actual goal is. In terms of China's relationship with the West, well, you know, countries like Iran and China, they very much see their relationship with each other in the context of their relationship with the West, because those Western relationships have been very important, whether you're talking about Iran from a sanctions perspective or China from a trade perspective. And that's been a key problem with the Sino-Iranian relationship is that both countries uh, sort of have a, have a concern towards each other where they have this asymmetrical great power, middle power relationship where China is worried about being entrapped in sort of Iran being overly aggressive and entrapping it into some conflict with the West. Or on the other hand, Iran is worried about being abandoned at a critical point. And this has been, a, you know, China has, in fact, voted against Iran at the Security Council in the late 2010s on several occasions, basically by, uh, you know, watering down the Security Council resolution a bit and also being given some, you know, non-Iran related incentives by the United States. So these these things dog the relationship uh, very much still today. What's changed is in the context of great power competition. Um, China, China's, China looks at Iran and no longer necessarily sees something that's going to drag it into a conflict. Mm. Again, these are still in very, very early stages. I don't want to make absolute statements uh, because we still have to see how this unfolds. But China was always concerned that its relationship with the United States would go from cooperation and some competition to a more antagonistic uh, relationship that is, has essentially happened anyway. So the concern about being dragged into some conflict with the United States by Iran seems to be losing some steam in terms of a major hindrance towards the relationship. We saw that, for example, with Iran being accepted in is a it, well, its membership process beginning with regards to the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, something that had been blocked, uh, it seems, largely by China uh, basically since 2008. So even after the JCPOA, even after all of that. So there, there are a lot of shifting dynamics right now. Well, but the truth to be told is the relationship 
between US and some of the countries in the Middle East are actually standing at the crossroads. And we know that the sitting US President Joe Biden, again, as we are speaking right now, it's on his way to uh, visiting Saudi Arabia. You know, again, that's one of the major partners within the Middle East, actually from this oil perspective. And you know, again, if we go back to the US domestic economy, talk about the gas price. Now, this is actually worries Joe Biden at this moment. So in other words, some of the countries in the Middle East are terrified that China is growing much closer towards them because in other words, it means the US is losing those countries as partners or as a, you call it economic uh, alliance, however you want to address it. So my question to you, Mr. Mahdi, is why do you think the U.S. at this moment it's so concerned about those friends or we call it quote friends in the Middle East? But meanwhile, U.S. realizes that having this conflict or having this deadlock with China, it's not going to bring those partners in the Middle East much closer. So in other words, maybe smoothing out with China can be the better solution in order to see the bigger picture. You see what I'm talking about? Sure. I, I don't really think that's possible because ultimately America's priority in the world is to maintain its hegemony. That was, you know, that that is the strategic defense uh, documents that came out in 1992. So that's that's what America's priority is, maintaining unipolarity in the world. And China is a competitor, is the only is the only real competitor to the United States. Russia is also sort of a near peer competitor, but obviously it's the performance of its army in this conflict with Ukraine has been uh, has been underwhelming to say the least. Uh, ultimately, with the Middle East, I don't think America's uh, GCC partners or uh, Israel are, are are scared of China becoming more powerful. It seems, if anything, the, the re China for, for the for China, the Middle East does not seem particularly that important. What's most important for China with regards to Asia is a three key subregion: Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Central Asia. The Middle East is of secondary importance at best. But the reason it's become so influential in the Middle East is partly because it buys a lot of petroleum, but also because it's been actively courted by America's uh, allies in the Middle East. America learns how to handle alliances from a lot of Cold War lessons. Mm. So it over-invests in relationships, expecting those countries to become, to develop a corresponding investment in a pro-American order. That largely has kind of worked out in with regards to Europe, with regards to East Asia, but not with regards to the Middle East. Now those, you know, it's you have authoritarian countries versus versus democracies. So may, a lot of people will argue that's what the key difference is there. But the thing, but but what Joe Biden is going to do with in the Middle East is he's going to try to back down from some of the. Um, some of the claims he made or promises he made during the campaign where he said he's going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Uh, he's never really done that. I mean, America's actual material relationship with Saudi Arabia has not transformed uh, critically since Biden came into office. But there's been a hands-off approach towards Saudi Arabia, and that seems like it's going to end. I think part of what the United States is concerned about was, for example, there was a lot of reports that Saudi Arabia is going to apply to join the, uh, the BRICS countries. Mm. Uh, it ended up being Iran and Argentina that did that. But so that would have the timing, especially if you think about it, right, when that BRICS conference happened is when right before that was when Joe Biden finally said he's going to go to Saudi Arabia. So he's worried about America's Middle East allies drifting further uh, away from the United States and seeing more opportunity to cooperating with China. But America's Middle Eastern allies, you know, they can't just simply shift towards China. They have, you know, they buy a lot of weapons from the United States. They can't just buy Chinese weapons instead. There's an 
interoperability issue. China is not going to send vast forces mm. to defend them against Iran or anybody else. So they, they are using this sort of playing both sides. They're in a position to do so. And they're trying to get what they can from, from both relationships. Uh, last thing, last point I'll mention in terms of, uh, you mentioned petroleum and the price of, the price of gas. If the price of gas is very high in the United States right now. And that's going to be a very significant issue for Joe Biden going into these midterm elections that are that's going to happen right. in November. And he could lose control of Congress and probably will lose at least one chamber. Mm. Uh, the thing is that Saudi Arabia is already producing at a very high level. So how much spare capacity it has, how much it could sustainably increase its production is not necessarily clear. If it was to make an agreement with Iran and Venezuela and get Iran and Venezuela's oil back on the market, that would actually stand a far better chance of, uh, of actually contributing to the lowering of petroleum uh, prices. But, uh, but it seems like Joe Biden's trip to the Middle East is really more about uh, sort of maintaining an awkward and expensive status quo for the United States, because it's just in the, in the context of everything that's going on in Europe and Southeast Asia, uh, you know, reorienting its foreign policy in the Middle East in a significant way and maybe trying to have a better relationship with Iran. It's just too resource and attention ex extensive right now and can't really happen. Mm. I want to continue our conversation regarding this Belt and Road Initiative. Again, that not only that elevates the image of China, but also that brings a lot more countries, including Russia, you know, within uh, the, the BRICS, you know, into the conversation as well. Now, Mr. Mahdi, correct me if I'm wrong. Belt and Road, not only that the resources on land, but also today, we are looking at the year 2022, the resources or even the ownership in the water matters even more today, particularly to China. I know within this article, you also mentioned something that related to the maritime uh, a territory that under China. Can you help us to understand for this geopolitical and also this geoeconomic benefits, how would you think that China sees the resources in the water or even the territory within the water can be beneficial in the long run for this country? So in other words, what is China trying to accomplish by owning or buying, by trying to uh, possessing the water resources? Well, I mean, for China, the, the, for trade in general, the water is more important. 80% of all global trade, it goes through maritime. So if you think about what happened, the origins of the Silk Road, the Silk Road was eventually essentially blocked because of the tensions between the Christian world and the Muslim world. And there, you know, shipbuilding took off because it needed to, because you needed waterways to be able to. So that's where the road in Belt and Road comes from. It's the road into the sea. It's the, the maritime Silk Road. And that is, of course, very important for China. That is the primary means with which China exports. The problem is that it's surrounded by countries that may not necessarily have a very good relationship with it, even if they have proper economic relations with each other. It's surrounded by uh, countries that have very close relationships with the United States. In particular, it is heavily reliant on the Strait of Malacca to transit goods. And this has always been referred to as the Malacca dilemma. The China worries about what happens if these very narrow sea routes on which it's depending mm. uh, become blocked in the context of some sort of conflict. And in fact, there have been American political experts in Washington. Uh, one uh, specifically you know, mentioned that, well, if, if there is a conflict with China pertaining to, say, Taiwan, then one thing the U.S. could do to seriously damage China's situation is to block the Strait of Malacca mm. or to regulate 
regulate what gets to go through it and block Chinese goods. This has itself been uh, cited by many as a key reason for why the Belt and Road Initiative came about, is not only to try to strengthen China's access to ports around the world, but also to create that belt, the land routes going across Asia, into Africa, into Europe, that would limit Chinese dependence on the maritime routes. So, and this is the same thing when I mentioned uh, Russia's uh, look to look eastward strategy. A big part of that is India, because India is a major uh, Russian economic partner that is not going along with the sanctions. But its access to India is limited by the fact that India is surrounded by Pakistan and China on land. It's uh, it's uh, you know key adversaries, and so the north south transportation corridor goes through Russia, goes through the Caucasus, and goes through Iran to reach Bandar Abbas, which is a port on the Strait of Hormuz. And so that allows for both faster uh, transit to India, and it also allows them to evade the Suez Canal or having mm-hmm. to go all the way across, uh, you know, over Europe and these more complicated paths that could at, at some point in the future be politicized as well. Mm. Mr. Amadi, I want to go back to the article that, again, something that you wrote, and I quote, While talking about Asia resonates in China is frequently mentioned in Chinese government pronouncements, the most important area to the BRI have been the key sub-region in China's near abroad, Central Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. Now, we know that the Belt and Road has become even more influential than ever again given the fact that you know this year is the 10-year anniversary and also for the current chinese leader this year also crucial to continue his presidency for the country but meanwhile one thing that i learned as an international reporter covering the news across the world is for any project or for any country it's better to be cautious so in other words take one step at a time but right now to me China seems more or much greedier than ever. So in other words, this is an unquenchable desire trying to cover the territory more than ever. Now, I want to ask you the question, Mr. Mahdi, is if China is genuinely interested in Central Asia, South Asia, or Southeast Asia, how could China place the priorities in terms of uh, focusing building this closer political or economic ties? So in other words, you can't be the favorite kid in every school or in every class. You got to pick the one that you enjoy the most. You're going to pick the best buddies that you want to hang out the most. So in other words, mm-hmm. what do you think China is trying to accomplish by targeting the three specific regions? I mean, they're they're equally powerful, but you're going to pick the best one. What is your take on that? Well, when you're China, you can pick uh, maybe not everybody, but you can pick a lot of people because it because of the sheer scope and size of the chinese economy and because its ability to lend money you know there are other countries with infrastructure programs but the amount of money they're lending the amount of money they have the capacity to lend uh is is minuscule compared to what china is lending for you know regions in asia that are very infrastructure deprived japan is uh, probably the top alternative mm-hmm. india is trying to uh do more it's trying to do more with iran but it's it's not clear how much money there is for that that Europe and North America can I mean, Europe and the United States are basically just you know asking their private businesses to make these investments and their private businesses don't really want to invest in infrastructure especially in risky places so China can pick a lot of different areas to invest in and it's it's very much focused on these three regions in part because of the basic 
outlines of what the BRI is even about to begin with. And that is a lot of it has to do with the fact that China is trying to use the BRI to uh, to 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 globalize its corporations, which have a lot of space to roam in those regions, as opposed to, say, in Western Europe, where the market's most saturated. It wants to export its excess uh, industrial capacity, and it wants to develop its its uh, sort of outer edge provinces, geographically peripheral provinces, like Xinjiang and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so those areas constitute China's near abroad. And so for that purpose, developing those areas helps it also develop its own interior. And so those are why the, these are the most important regions for China to invest in and to work in. It certainly also you know, has relations in the Middle East, has relations. A lot of these countries in Eastern Europe, like Ukraine itself and Poland, very much had great ambitions of participating in the BRI project through the uh, Eurasian, uh, Eurasian road. That's now kind of fallen apart. But even in Latin America, China has a lot of uh, economic ties. But it, by the the point I was making there is that its its primary focus is in those three subregions, and that's part of what uh, part of what makes uh, Iran perhaps somewhat important because to connect those subregions to each other, uh, going through Afghanistan, it seems to be what a lot of what, there's been a lot of activity of Chinese mm-hmm. officials interacting with the new Taliban regime in Afghanistan. Uh, the security situation there just seems unlikely to al- allow for that to happen mm-hmm. in a practical sense right now. South of the, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which is the most of China's investment in South Asia, and China's Central Asia investments, which have a tremendous amount of economic compatibility, they're right now trading with each other essentially through Western China. And that's a really long road when you think about especially the fact that most of uh, the CPEC's investments are in are in uh, Western Pakistan uh, near the Iranian border, and uh, the, its investments in, in Central Asia are largely in countries like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan that border the Caspian. So going through western iran seems to be the option and that sort of intersects with russia's ambitions to use the north-south transportation corridor Mm. to uh interact with both china and and with both uh, india and pakistan mr amadi i know you're fairly busy and i got two more questions before letting you go now let's go back to the article again the article's entitled encourage everyone to go online to look for this amazing uh, article is entitled Russia-Ukraine War Implications for Asian Geoeconomics. I think the next question will be very simple. We're into the fifth month that watching this war in Ukraine. So in other words, at the beginning, the whole world thought Vladimir Putin was just bluffing in terms of invading and attacking the people in Ukraine. But meanwhile, fast forward, this war has not stopped yet. And I, I want to say neither of the side is actually winning. I mean, given this condition that they lost people, lost casualties, and also supplies, etc. My next question to you, Mr. Mahdi, is do you think that this war actually complicated the relationship for some countries in Asia? So in other words, before the war, I wasn't saying the world was perfect. But at least everyone was trying to get on the same page or everyone was trying to pace themselves in order to keep up with each other. But right now, because the existing war, it complicates this geopolitical partnership and or this geoeconomic partnership. How much do you think that this war in Ukraine complicated the relationship, not only for Russia, but also for some countries in Asia? Well, look, wars tend to uh, accelerate existing processes. 
for the United States. We've seen uh, really since the Obama administration a realization that a rising China and perhaps a rising China, a, a rising Russia are going to end the moment of unipolarity and present the prospect of near peer competition. This really started taking off towards the end of the of the Trump administration, where rhetoric against China in particular became increasingly aggressive, and the Biden administration seemed to. The Biden administration was not interested in the idea of of uh, of a Finlandizing Ukraine, of essentially allowing it to be this neutral country that's a buffer between America's sphere of influence and Russia. They seem to have wanted, uh, you know, to, to Ukraine NATO, and argued that essentially it's Ukraine's right to choose whether it wants to be a NATO or not. And this, so the great power competition is what has what what creates this new era of of geopolitical risk and complexity in the world. Uh, the the war that Russia has launched in Ukraine uh, served just to accelerate the fact that we're now fully into it because we seem to be going into it slowly and now we're fully we're fully engaged in it this is really the first conflict of this new era of great power competition uh and not something that caused something that wasn't already wasn't already existing obviously no one expected vladimir putin to make such a rash decision uh you're right that the war doesn't seem to be going very well for russia they have suffered significant losses they're under a lot of sanctions uh, they are, however, they failed to take Kiev, which was their initial plan to sort of take Kiev quickly, um, but now are making significant progress in the south and the east of Ukraine and taking a lot of land, and they seem to be digging in for the long haul. Uh, but so for Russia, this is about the long term. This is about its reputation, its credibility down the road, and it's the same way for especially a lot of the Eastern Europeans and the United States. Mm. Mr. Mahdi, I want to end our conversation again going back to China. As I mentioned before, this year is crucial not only for the nation, but also for the sitting president. Now, on one hand, as soon as the war broke out in Russia, China was involved into the conversation. And both you and I, we know that sitting U.S. President Joe Biden had a second virtual meeting with uh, Xi Jinping regarding China's non-involvement in the war in Ukraine and all Russia. But on the other hand... Many other international experts are also concerned that China could reach out to other countries, for example, uh, North Korea, and Japan, South Korea, in order to join this effort to take sides or could be a bench player as well. But at this moment, my question to you is, China's plate is pretty full at this moment. And again, not only for the party, but also for uh, a lot of projects. My question to you is, for this year, how much do you think China is willing to involve itself in the international affairs? Again, may not be directly, but indirectly, how much interest do you think the Chinese government is willing to put into? If so, does that relate to any China's benefit or or China just want to stay out of it because my plate is pretty full? What is your take on that? Well, I, I think China is going to have a very limited appetite to get involved in anything involving Russia and Ukraine. China is not is not Russia. It, it's much more conservative. It's much more careful uh, than Russia. It's not going to want to see its economic relationship obstructed 
with Russia because of sanctions and whatnot, even though that's already happened to some extent because of lack of access to, you know, uh, a lot of financial facilities that are mainly based in the West. But that that is going to be China just trying to maintain its basic economic relationship with Russia. In terms of the larger uh, global uh, risk landscape for China, this year is going to be a consequential one and a very severe one because you're already seeing in the context of great power competition, like we talked about, you're already seeing a number of very significant steps being taken against China as well, mm. mainly in the field of limiting Chinese access to high technology, integrated circuits, emerging technologies, and semiconductors in particular uh, play a very important role because China semiconductors are very important from you know producing things like everything from washing machine and cars, many of the semiconductors that China can produce for itself, but the more aggressive, the more advanced uh, semiconductors used for cloud computing, for weapon systems, uh, for a lot of these more complicated things. Things, China is still very much reliant on a lot of countries that has a fairly adversarial relationship with mainly South Korea and Taiwan. And China is also very heavily reliant on the United States and the Netherlands for uh, the software and manufacturing technology for semiconductors. So this is already, we've seen this really since, based on some of the recent reports, since May and June, the United States is trying to put together a sort of a, a global coalition made up of a lot of Western countries and a lot of its East Asian allies to start uh, cutting down uh, on exports of these high technologies to China as a means of, they call them dual use, that they can have military applications. But the point of this is has always been the case with uh, export restrictions and technology sanctions is to undermine the quick technological development and the industrial development that can underpin China's power, both in terms of uh, the People's Liberation Army, as well as its, as well as its geoeconomic ambitions and its own economic development. So this is going to be a crucial year for China in terms of its in terms of its uh, its competition with the United States, really sort of uh, forming and taking shape. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I again, I believe that 2022 has already been one of the crucial years, not only for China, but also for a lot of countries. Again, Mr. Mahdi, as we mentioned before, we're watching this midterm election in the US, and also we're looking at a lot more upcoming elections within Asia and also within the countries of Europe and also in Latin America. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Mr. Ali Ahmadi. And Mr. Ahmadi, it's a scholar of sanctions and geoeconomics. He's currently an executive fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy and Analysis at a Gulf State Analytics in Washington. Mr. Ahmadi, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. Again, I encourage everyone to go online to look for this article entitled Russia-Ukraine War Implications for Asian Geoeconomics. And again, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and we love to have you back on the show again as we continue not only watch the progress in this political changes in the u.s most importantly around the countries in the world thank you